0: This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by Blue Apron, SIP Recruiter, The Great Courses Plus, Movement Watches, and our contributors at Patreon.com. There's a long held belief by some that modern mankind was preceded by those that were human, but much larger than we are today. People of such physical stature that they are thought to have been giants. The very idea of giants existing in our past has fanned the flames of heated rhetoric for decades mixing science, faith, cultural identity, and pseudoscience all together, polarizing researchers and skeptics as well. Astonishing Legends is a show about the big picture of these stories. With the help of the Astonishing Research Corps, we're able to uncover mountains of information in short periods of time. We coalesce what we find before taking it apart again to look for the roots of the legends and the lore. And of course, The truth, to the extent that it can be revealed. Those components of every legend must all be embraced and understood before you can really grasp the big picture. So sit back and relax as we take you on a journey into the history of giants.
1: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess.
0: The eyes of that species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds of America have gazed on Niagara, as ours do now.
1: Abraham Lincoln. Join us tonight for part one of our series on giants.
0: And we're back. Wait. And we're back. And we're, and we're back. What are you doing? <laughs> that was my giant voice.
1: Oh. Yeah. Okay. Um, right. The That's last, right. Just
0: take the last one, Sarah.
1: Right. Uh, and before we take one more step, I need to make a quick announcement regarding last week's show, Imminent Disclosure Part 2. During that show, we mistakenly referred to trans woman Chelsea Manning exclusively by her birth name, Bradley Manning. This was an oversight and current protocol as it relates to transgender people and no slight against them was intended by either us or our guest security clearance expert, Michael, who emailed us to say the following, quote, When I was in the military, I had to refer to Chelsea as Bradley due to the Uniform Code of Military Justice case and current intel. Our directives didn't allow us to refer to her as anything else. That being said, I understand it is a sensitive subject and I offer my sincerest apology. What Michael is referring to is the espionage case against Ms. Manning for leaking 750,000 classified or otherwise sensitive military documents to WikiLeaks in 2010. We apologize to those we offended with this error and in fact had actually intended to say something about Manning's transition during the show and even built it into our outline but overlooked it during production, which happens more often than you would know, just not about such a sensitive and obvious issue. In response to some of the feedback we got on this, we issued a statement in our Facebook group if you're seeking further clarification on it. The gist of that statement, though, is simply that it was an honest mistake.
0: Indeed. Well, in other news, it's been an amazing research week for the show. We'd like to give a special shout out to our two anthropologists in the Astonishing Research Corps, Katie Cohan and Christy Glasgow, for diving in and helping us get our heads wrapped around tonight's complex topic.
1: Yes, and and to be clear, they both have varying experiences in anthropology, And Christy actually is, I believe, no longer a practicing anthropologist. So she's, well, maybe you shouldn't say that. But I can tell you that they know more than uh, anybody else we got in there. Well, (laughs) everyone in there does, (laughs) yes. I really appreciate getting their help with framing how we take a look at tonight's details and information around giants. Yeah. We're so lucky, honestly, to have such educated people in our midst. And before we get into the show, two very important notes about our upcoming schedule which is likely going to throw people, even though I'm going to announce it right here, we're still going to get tweets saying, what happened? <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> so pay be attention. For me, sure. Yeah, pay attention right now. Next week is a scheduled dark week for us. Dark week meaning that we usually don't produce a show or release anything. Normally there wouldn't be a show. However, since we're breaking this current series into multiple parts, we're not sure yet if it's going to be two or three. But either way, the first thing to understand is that the next part of this series will not run next week. It will run the week after that. So part two will be the week after next. Yeah. However, we are releasing a separate and unrelated commercial-free bonus show next week to keep you entertained.
0: That's right. When we were doing the imminent disclosure series, we interviewed our very own Dr. Chris Cogswell from the Astonishing Research Corps about his exciting new position as director of research for MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, which is the world's oldest and largest UFO phenomenon investigative body. It would appear we now have a man on the inside. Except we just announced it, so it's no longer. (laughs) 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 He will be fired next week. No. Anyway, he sat down with us for about a half an hour to talk about what he's doing over there and we felt like it needed to be its own thing so if
1: you subscribe to us you'll get that show next week. Yes and part two of this series will follow the week after. Everyone got it? Good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh by the way our new hats are in they should be in the store at astonishinglegends.com by the time this show airs So, if you've been waiting on a hat, we got some new ones in some new colors. The logo embroidery this time around was actually done by a company that employs at-risk kids to give them a chance to work in a skilled trade. Which is fantastic. Hey, uh, something else here. You know what? Nobody picked
0: up on our little musical code that Ryan inserted so cleverly into
1: the opening of the last show. I know. Everyone is paying so much attention to every word that comes out of our (laughs) mouth. (laughs) but You know what people miss A strange phenomenon phenomenon. Yeah, go back and listen to the cold open, the very beginning of Imminent Disclosure Part 2, and listen to the music after Forrest says the word phenomenon. Or
0: or was it phenomenological?
1: No, you said phenomenon. Okay, very good. Yeah. All right. So anyway, let's talk Giants. The first thing I want to say is, this is the last show we're going to do that's this broad. Well, I, I feel partly to
0: blame for that. Like, I have some responsibility because I was thinking more of a specific incident, which is... The Spanish Hill, Sayer Pennsylvania, Mound, skeleton, giant, the bones, that incident that happened. And I kind of casually tossed that out there. But as Scott will say, you know, like the Ark, what it really is, is a bunch of ravenous lions hungry for information. And the next thing I know, it's all taken off. and This thing exploded into
1: all giants, all the time, the yeah. entire history of giants. Yeah, I mean that's my fault too. I threw the bait in and said, This is gonna be about giants. And what I should have said is we're gonna pick a few incidents because when a show gets this big, it gets really hard to wrangle. So but we did our best to put it in a shape that will make sense right, to you. Right. But this is a huge topic. You well, could literally do an entire season of Astonishing Legends on on all these different tales well, about that's, it's, giants. Yeah, it's one of those topics, though, I, I tell people jokingly
0: about. It's like, well, our friend Rob K is doing that about UFOs. It's like when people say, like, why don't you do a show on UFOs? Like, where do you start? Jeez. Well, he's doing it because he's going to do all the the history of it, all the definitions, all the interesting stories and cases that come up but that is his whole show. So when you pick a topic like that, it's like, well, why don't you do something on ghosts? It's like, which, what what incident? Yeah. So Giants is a little bit like that, even though there are a lot of historical references we can kind of touch on. And there are specific cases of uh, real bones being found or hoaxes. And we're going to try and determine which is which throughout history. So We probably should have
1: picked a few of those and then expanded on that. Well, I mean, we sort of did that. It's it's a lot to go over. There's definitely things you're going to be like, oh my God, I can't believe you didn't say that. Yeah, there's going to be some stuff that's not in here, but we're going to do our best to give you the big picture. We actually have a very fun interview planned for later in this series, which we'll tell you about tonight before this episode is up. Where do we start? There's literally hundreds of famous giants throughout history. I mean, everybody knows this, but do you really think about it? Forrest, would you list off what many What... Let's go with some of the more prominent ones.
0: Yeah, I mean from the beginning of time, and actually, anti-deluvian. I get to say that again. I love, oh, nice. I love that. Yeah, actually, that is features a, in a big part of it. Uh, anti That's against deluge. Pre, <laughs> well, before. So pre deluges. What's a deluge? The deluge, le deluge. So oh. before the flood. That's all you need to know. Oh, so it's that old time before you know recorded history, and uh, we've talked about that before in Oak Island and the Book of Enoch and uh, the golden delta yes. which and and all the secrets uh, of the earth and the uh, and our world here and that was a time when the world was really magical but also weird so you had things like giants And uh, Nephilim, that's what I was getting at, which are the offspring, you could say, of angels or entities that have mated with human women because they saw them and they were beautiful. They mated with the daughters of men. But then you get a lot of uh, jerky, giant beings. Giant jerks. Yeah, that beat up on people that are just horrible, very violent and and, uh, murderous. And uh, that's one of the things that triggers the flood is to hit the reset button by the good Lord. So he's like, you know what? This has gotten way out of hand. This is just some weird stuff down there. And none of it is real nice. So yeah. of course, uh, Noah and his family, like those are good peeps. I'm going to save them. We're going to start over. But that is some of the first stories of giants on this earth. Yeah. And again, that's an interesting aspect because there are some giants, as we'll take a look at tonight, which are productive and friendly. And they come from a specific area, mostly America. That's a lot of our legends are like that. And Paul Bunyan. Exactly. Paul Bunyan will reference a book by Brad Lockwood, which I had come across a few years ago. On Giants. Mounds, Monsters, Myth, and Man. Yeah. Really like that one. Very even keeled. Pretty short. Level
1: headed. Uh, But yeah, it's under a
0: hundred pages, but uh, some solid uh, research and I think some thorough and solid conclusions as well, when he takes a look at the whole picture. But yeah, getting back to tales of old, you have then uh, Goliath, yeah. Nimrod from the Bible, who built the Tower
1: of Babel. Yeah, he apparently was not a very nice guy. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. None of the- <laughs> he was after yeah. the flood. He was Noah's great grandson, I believe. And here's something I, I've mentioned before on a
0: previous show recently, I think maybe it was for the Yeti, but the noble savage, they're a duality. They're a, yes. they're a man struggling. It's a, like Lord Byron, you could say, was the noble savage in that, you know, he was a cultured man, very smart and talented but battling his uh, proclivities you could say, you know, yes. with a strong drink and the ladies. That's part of the noble savage, but one of the first things i was taught in classics in my classics class was that the classic hero from the great stories of antiquity, the hero is often a jerk and saves people but also does horrible violent things. Yeah. And you can expect that from them because they embody this kind of power that normal humans aren't supposed to have. So that's one thing I remember our classics professor talking about is that you can expect the great heroes to – all the stories about them aren't nice. So same thing with Gilgamesh. Now there's theories that uh, he was a descendant of one of the Nephilim – because he was a giant, but also because he's a giant and can do anything he wants, he's kind of a jerk yeah so the gods created Enkidu to kind of teach him a lesson and they become great friends and I, I was talked about that before so people with great power generally abuse it is what we can learn except for guys like Paul Bunyan, right? yeah,
1: the interesting thing about Paul, I'll talk about him like <laughs> you know, oh, I we sure. used to hang out, but he he actually is thought to be an amalgam of two different guys one who was the founding member of a farmer's rebellion known as the Papineau Rebellion in Canada, whose last name was Fournier. And then uh, there was another guy named uh, Bon something, I can't remember his name, who was a actual lumberjack. And uh, he was described as having two rows of teeth, which is something that will come up. That does come
0: up, which is strange. I don't think, uh,
1: I really can't see twice the brushing. Yeah, double rows of teeth, they called it. But there's other scholars and researchers that say that they couldn't find any connection between those two real people Yeah, and Paul Bunyan. They felt, especially when they look at the timeline of when he emerged or the idea of him emerged, Right. they felt like it didn't match up. And yeah. that's a lot of what you find with these kinds of stories. You'll always find in the research, you'll be people that will say, oh, this is the origin for that. This is where it came from. And then there's other people will be like, there's no way that's the origin. And they think yeah. it's just folklore, you know, told around the fires of... of in the logging world and right. that sort of thing. There's a lot of towns that lay claim to uh, being Paul Bunyan's town. Oh, yeah. I've driven you know, through one. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you, in fact, if you watch any of the Fargo stuff, you always see you <laughs> right. know, the Coen brothers. There's always a statue of Paul Bunyan figuring yeah, yeah. prominently on the side of the highway there. You drive um, up the 101 and you'll see him and Babe his blue
0: ox. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But that's the origin story to most of this. It took five storks to deliver him, by the way. I can see why. You see that <laughs> statue by the side of the highway there. He's huge. But that's where these things are born. And as you can see when we lay this out, that there might be, you know, some real people that these things are possibly based on, but the stories get exaggerated over time. Yeah. And and maybe even the findings, as we'll see in like the mid-19th century when they were made, there may have been some genuinely strange bones or normal bones that were exaggerated, uh, the description of which, were exaggerated by onlookers. And from there, it takes off, and then it literally grows. It gets huge. Hello, everyone. I'm R.A. Fadley, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show.
1: Just briefly, before we go too much further, I do want to explain a little bit about the Nephilim for people that don't know about them. Because it's interesting. A a lot of people think that they're angels or fallen angels, but they are not. There's a lot of different ways to uh, explain it. But here's a description that I got from—it's actually from a Jehovah's Witness website, jw.org. The Nephilim were giants, the violent superhuman offspring produced when wicked angels mated with human women in the days of Noah. The Bible account says that, quote, The sons of the true God began to notice that the daughters of men were beautiful. That's Genesis 6-2. Yeah. And they list some misconceptions about them, which I thought was interesting. One is that the Nephilim were fathered by humans. The fact is, their fathers are called sons of the true God. The Bible uses this same expression to describe angels. Angels had the power to materialize in human form. So that's interesting. And then the other misconception, as I said a second ago, is that they themselves were fallen angels. But the context of Genesis 6-4 indicates that the Nephilim were not angels, but hybrid offspring born from sexual relations between materialized angels and women. That's very fascinating. uh, Oh, yeah.
0: It figures into these 19th century stories. And they were mean. (laughs) Well, that's what I was saying. It's like, if you're huge and everyone else is puny, you can take whatever you want. So that's going to be a theme that's as old as physical people, beings on this earth As well as the Bible, as we said. But the reason that we're mentioning this is that the stories that will cover the instances of hoax or, you know, actual things being found in real mounds, burial mounds in the 1850s, is that there is a religious aspect to that. So it's good to set that up first. Sure. So yeah, we'll see giants being mentioned quite a bit in the Bible, significantly. In one instance, they're known as the Anakim, which is a race of... Of giants, as described in the Bible, uh, Anakin Skywalker was that. That's Anakin, isn't it? <laughs>
1: yeah, it's pretty close. Well, though,
0: right? the, yeah, I, I, well, those folks borrow a lot of stuff. Yeah, from they, do. <laughs> they do. So
1: it's like, uh, by the way, there's yeah. a lot of influence from uh, Dune in the first Star Wars. Yeah, there's actually a lot sand of Sandworm, skeleton, in the- it's
0: very uh, biblical in that sense. You yeah. know, it's origin story and it's desert. It's a lot of the same themes. That's also another running theme here is that why are, are there giant stories all over the world? Why mm-hmm. does every culture have their own? Why does every Yeah. Why does every culture Sorry, have a flood I'm, story? I'm, I'm You're getting Wars. Wars. Did You just saw it? Did you, you must have just watched it. No, I can't. It was a few weeks ago. Okay, well, let's leave Porgs out of it then. All right. <laughs> so the idea, though, is that these are resonant themes with human beings from the beginning of time to now. But if you look at the Bible... The Anakim were described as a race of giants and descended from their forefather, Anak. And this is also in the Tanakh, which I guess is known as the Mikra or the Hebrew Bible. And the Tanakh is the canonical collection of Jewish texts which is also a source for the Christian Old Testament. Now, I'm sorry right. if I'm getting some of this wrong. I've taken this a lot of this just from Wikipedia. So go blame them. But I think, it, I think it's- After you blame yeah, us for using Wikipedia. I'm so sorry. Yeah, well, no, you know what? It's like, at least uh, I know that that's been looked over. So yeah. those are things I think generally agreed upon, depending upon your denomination. But we're going to go with that for the moment. In the book of Numbers, Anak was a forefather of the Anakim, as we said, and he was a son of Arba, both of these guys were giants. So we're seeing generation of uh, giants
1: bearing other giants, and then now there is a small race of giants Right, and around. the Bible describes both of them, as you just said, as actual descendants of the Nephilim. Yeah, so that would be the origin for this planet here, according to
0: the Bible. Right. Uh, the old Hebrew Bible, which then, you know, was turned into the old Christian Bible. So the Old Testament part of it. And so that's where we're seeing the start of this, is that at the very start of creation, giant beings that are now roaming the earth, there's a race of them, and they have their own area, they have their own region, their country, their land. They were also known as Raphaites, I think. Rephaite refers to either a group of people that were greater than average size, or just generally giants possibly, or to dead ancestors who are residents of the netherworld, so that's what you see, you know, with a lot of these old terms, is that they can kind of cover several different ideas. And so where the Rephaeites or the Anak figure in or the Anakim is in the story of the 12 spies, where Moses, after they were liberated from Egypt, they go out into the desert. They're looking for the promised land. Moses sends out 12 spies, as they're called, which are leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel to go out and check out the land. We got to find a place to live. So be positive, as he says. Report back about the farming conditions. What do the cities look like? Are they small camps? Are they fortifications? How strong do they look? What's the temperament? And bring back some produce while you're at it. What's going to lay the land here, really? And uh, report back to us. And apparently what happened is that they came upon some anakim. Giants, as they described. And I'm not sure if this is the connected passage, but they felt like grasshoppers in their presence. Yes. Giants. And so they came back and 10 of the 12 spies, and these are supposed to be the leaders of their tribes and and brave people. Joshua was one of them. He was a fierce warrior. Well, the 10 are freaked out. They come back with a bad report of like, "Yeah, yeah, it's a land of milk and honey. I mean, look at these grapes. They're huge. It takes two guys on a pole to carry these things. Plenty of good food out there, but there are these giants and they're really mean. And I don't think we could take them. I think we should stay away from this area. Yeah. And so in their doubting that the Lord would provide for them this land, the land of Canaan, Two of the men, Joshua and Caleb, though, are believers. And they said, like, well, no, I think we can take this land. You know, this is the promised land. God is going to fulfill his promise to us. I say we get in there and reap the bounty of this harvest here. Let's get in there, and and this is going to be great. But because the ten who doubted and were talking the whole expedition down to the rest of the Israelites— managed to convince the majority. And so they didn't want to go there. So guess what? This 40 day scouting trip now turns into 40 years wandering the desert. That's where that story comes from. Okay. Because they did not trust in the Lord to provide them with a land of milk and honey, the land of Canaan, where the Anakim were, which I believe the Lord said, like, I'll, don't worry about it. Get in there. I will kind of, uh, help push them out. So eventually, though, that's what happened is that after 40 years, most of these other gentlemen passed on in that span of time, Joshua and Caleb, because they did believe in the power of the Lord and the promise of the Lord, they survived. So Joshua eventually expelled these giants from the land, except for a few that found a refuge in the Philistine cities of Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. So eventually- Yes. Okay. Some of these places still yeah. around. Yeah, <laughs> so, Hebron, which is near uh, this area, is still around, of course. These are very, very old cities. So the idea, though, is that Joshua eventually pushed these very real giants, if you are to believe of this, and the Israelites eventually find their place. So again, that is a, another big story of giants in the Bible. But of course, the one that people probably most know is that uh, one of these Philistine giants that left the land of Canaan and was driven out, one of the descendants was Goliath, whom David encounters in uh, the second book of Samuel, chapter 21. So Goliath was supposedly a descendant of the Anakim. So again, a bunch of giants not behaving very well and are doomed to be driven out. Giants behaving badly. Giants behaving badly, as giants will do, but as we'll see later on, sometimes they're friendly. In our literature here in the United States, sometimes they're helpful. Well, the Jolly Green Giant was very friendly. Well, that's... (laughs) <laughs> That's what Brad Lockwood Very says. Friendly. He's trying oh, to get. Oh, oh, he's trying to get kids to eat vegetables. Yeah, and, you should uh, do it.
1: You could probably do it better than me. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, nice. It's and a,
0: deep. yeah. Well, I saw we saw that as kids constantly because frozen vegetables were kind of a big thing since the 50s. I still think about up. it when I see them at the grocery store. There. Yeah, of that course. Guy, no, that he's, the V.O. guy he passed yeah, away years ago. I know ago, well, it's an enduring icon, but it, the legends of giants coming from Europe. They're not so nice. They're yeah. the mean ones. Jack and the Beanstalk. He's going to grind your bones to make his bread. Yeah. And so they must be tricked and defeated. That one version of him didn't like Bugs Bunny either. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, right. who doesn't like Bugs Bunny? I well, he's he's kind of a smart aleck. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah I guess he, he is. But if you're a jerk, he's going to get the better of you. Yeah. What's interesting though is that when the Europeans came to the United States to set up colonies and live. They didn't need to bring their nasty giant stories with them, although they did, because the nasty giant stories were also of the Native Americans here already. Their traditions of giants and folklore, the giants are not very nice either. They're they're murderous and cannibalistic
1: (laughs) giants. And they guard spiritual places. Yeah. That's kind of a reason also to be afraid and to keep away. Which is an interesting connection. Again, everything is connected. When you think about a spirit like that guarding a spiritual place, and you think about the lore of local indigenous peoples, I go back to, for example, Dyatlov Pass, and the region that the kids were hiking in, the hunters themselves would not go there. Right. It's the dead land. The local indigenous peoples there,
0: they didn't go there either. Right. There's no animals there. It's not a good place. Yeah. So,
1: you know, you crazy kids, be careful. So these are some of the giants of history that are firmly rooted in myths, folklore, legends, the Bible. But even with all of them, we only scratch the surface because while those giants are all, at least today, intangible, there are many, many more stories of giants that have been encountered by explorers or unearthed throughout the centuries by uninformed property owners at worst, <laughs> and archaeologists at best. Yeah. And like Forrest said a second ago, there's a lot of hoaxes, which is, we're going to talk about that because there's some really fascinating stories with the hoaxes, but there's also a lot of stories that are still undetermined and that bear a second look, and it will leave you scratching your head a little bit. We're going to talk about those too in this series. We also have to acknowledge that there is a rare medical condition known as gigantism that can lead some children to grow to startling heights very early in life, as much as uh, I was reading about one case where the boy was uh, five feet tall in kindergarten. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. There's another condition that's very similar to that, but different. It's called acromegaly. And that only affects adults. And those two can work in conjunction or layer each other, or they can just be completely independent. We're gonna talk about those a little bit, but first we're gonna cover the legends of stories about folks who weren't necessarily afflicted with those conditions. And the possibility of maybe a a missing race of humans who were much larger than we are today. The quote at the top of tonight's show kind of encapsulates a lot of what you find when you start looking into giants. And I thought it was a great quote, and we put it there. It's a quote that gets used frequently as a reference to giants. Right. Uh, the one by Abraham Lincoln. In fact, actually, can you repeat that quote, Forrest? Uh, not doing
0: my Lincoln impression. Well, do a Lincoln impression. No, I'm not going to no,
1: do No, everyone loves your impressions. Can <laughs> so, you do him? Nobody knows what he sounds like.
0: like huh? He's dead. No, <laughs> that's Daniel Day Lewis doing Lincoln.
1: Oh. Go yeah. ahead, do
0: it. The eyes of that species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds of America have gazed at Niagara, as Oz do
1: now. Nice.
0: Yeah, I don't know. That was really horrible. I but, don't kind of <laughs> like that one. But, <laughs> well, he's
1: retiring anyway. So
0: Yeah, I guess he's not passing the mantle to me, but yeah. apparently he'd studied the timber and tone of his voice, and I guess he was high-pitched. So I'm trying to think of another time where a quote was taken out of context and ran with, and used, and waved as a
1: flag for some other cause, and it didn't mean that at all. That does happen from time to time. Well, and that's what's happening with this quote, because when you listen to it, what he's saying, you know, he's talking about Niagara, the eyes of these giants, extinct species, even mentions mounds. I mean, it couldn't be more perfect, but here's the reality behind that story. It turns out that that quote comes from some written ramblings, because he wrote a lot. Sure. Uh, It's rumored that it was part of a speech that he made to Congress, Uh or some other speech or writings, but it was just some notes he made, essentially, after he visited Niagara. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you hear the surrounding language around it, this is an example of what we were just saying, how when you take it out of context, it becomes a completely different thing. Listen to that quote in context. The eyes of that species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds of America have gazed on Niagara as ours do now. Contemporary with the whole race of men and older than the first man, Niagara is strong and fresh today as 10,000 years ago. The mammoth and mastodon now so long dead that fragments of their monstrous bones alone testify that they ever lived have gazed on Niagara. By the way, I got this information relating to what I'm sharing with you now from a skeptic website called metabunk.org. and uh, Because we look at all points of view. yeah. Uh, This was posted there by an admin there named Mick West. And it's very interesting because he was going out of his way to point out how often this is taken out of context.
0: Well, you know, there's two words in there, though, that jump out to the person who's done a little reading on Giant's in America, especially. Yeah. And that is, well, the word giant,
1: <laughs> giants, and the word mounds. Yeah. And bones. Mounds and bones. But the other two words that immediately disqualify Lincoln as having any reference to giants, as in humans, right. are mammoth and mastodon. Because oh, what he's course. talking about are these extinct creatures sure. that he was aware of. Right. But and it, he, that's he, part so of he's this... talking about these giant prehistoric animals yeah. that saw Niagara. Yes. He is not talking about. Right.
0: 15-foot tall, 9-foot tall uh, Native Americans or societies that lived here uh, prior to the Native American cultures that the Europeans engaged when they first got here. So that all ties in with the mound builders of Southern Ohio, of Western New York, and these magnificent earthen structures that in the mid-19th century, people who own the land started digging up and were finding Bones. Artifacts. These are burial mounds. Yes. And that's a
1: little reused
0: for hundreds of years in some cases. Right. People's natural inclination is to bury their dead someplace prominent usually or out of the way. Yes. And these burial mounds are massive, impressive earthworks and the people who purchased the land and moved in and settled it and who weren't native Moved there and they didn't know anything about it, other than that you know they were trying to clear it or digging some stuff up, and that's where they came
1: across some very interesting artifacts. Yeah, because you know what the other thing they didn't know anything about yeah. was archaeology. Even the archaeology they were that, yeah. not being careful. <laughs> no, and and it's a tragedy. Yeah, it honestly. is that's
0: the history of humans and archaeology is that back through antiquity. It's not the people who are most careful. It's usually the grave robbers, especially in Egypt, who find stuff and loot things. And so- as Well, yeah. And know,
1: there's also destruction of sacred yeah. sites going on to this day with ISIS and uh, uh, you you know, know, what's of left course. of it anyway. And right. you see those videos of sacred thousand-year-old sites being completely destroyed. It's just tragic, but it also is human history repeating itself. I do want to quickly point out that- This is the reason that the NAGPRA Act was passed. I want to explain what this is. It is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which is now a United States law that was enacted on November 16th of 1990. And it's a complex code, which one of our anthropologist members in the Research Corps provided a book on for us. It's very interesting. But what it does is it protects those remains because so many of them had been looted, sold to collections, went to museums. All these things were happening before people became sensitive to that kind of activity. And conversely, it means that when you find new sites, a lot of times you can't dig. You don't dig now. And if you find bones from these sites in a museum, they are to be repatriated so they can be properly buried in a respectful way. Right. That is part of the bigger picture of how the water gets muddied with respect to all the not, where are the bones? This is something that's going to keep coming up. Well, all these mounds, there's all these stories. Where are the bones? Well, the bones either have been returned or there are cases where they can be lost. And there's other cases when it's a hoax and these bones that are supposedly huge don't exist. We're going to talk about all of that, but we just wanted to explain that act because it's an important part of how all these things are dealt with these days. But the fascinating thing is, and I think we've already pointed this out, is mm-hmm. that all cultures across the planet have giant lore, every single one of them. Yeah. And it, it reminds me, frankly, of the Yeti and talking <laughs> to Dr. Right. Taylor, because yeah. we talked about this in part two of that series, a little bit about where the idea of the Yeti comes from and culturally why that society in Nepal, for example, would seek to have it. Yeah, Because of the caste system, in some cases they have the lower, the wild man, the Bunmachi who we talked about, and then they have the Yeti that was at the higher level, which also in a way is a giant in its own way. So there's a connection there to how cultures revere these huge people. And like you said, some benevolent, some not so benevolent, some you don't even think about. The one that I came across when we were doing research for this episode that I hadn't even thought about in forever was... Little John. In The story of Robin Hood, yeah, yeah. Little well, we, John was yeah. a huge dude and is essentially described as kind of a giant. And on top of that, he bests Robin Hood in the quarterstaff <laughs> battle that they have on the log <laughs> or whatever.
0: Are, are you talking about uh, Warner The Warner Brothers, oh, now we're back to no, yes, I'm no, no. talking
1: about the Robin Hood story, but I yes, see. we are back Friar to Warner Tuck, Brothers with right. uh, Friar Duck, yes, that's right, yeah. Um, where he <laughs> says, I'm gonna fight you with my trusty buck and a quarter quarter buck staff, that's right, yeah. Yes. That one, that's pretty good, that's a great cartoon. A lot of people, uh, I think
0: from our era as well, group with the Disney version, uh, the animated version. I have that on the, vinyl. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. See? With Roger oh, Miller. Oh, yeah, right. Um, yeah, we're great. But one of the points I wanted to make is that the idea of a large human is an easy extrapolation to what we see every day. We can all envision somebody just like us, except they are 10 feet tall and they're big and strong and
1: can do all the things a
0: normal human can but 10 times better. And, yeah. You know, and that's
1: the thing about Little John. Technically, he's more skilled than Robin Hood. Yeah. He's bigger. And then after he beats Robin Hood, he becomes a benevolent best friend to him. Right. It's the idea of the hero,
0: though, that they're larger, stronger, better looking. Yeah. <laughs> they're superhumans. And so, again, it's an idealized version of us. And it's a natural thing to think about, a natural conclusion for us when we think of our stories and our myths. Now, on the other hand, a floating silvery goblin with giant baseball, fiery red, orange eyes, and giant bat ears, maybe not so much of a natural extension for the human imagination. Yeah. You know, it was, yeah. <laughs> That's my point. That was my reference. Like some things out there where we do have these strange creatures popping up in local legend and lore are not so easy to think about. That's really much more inventive. Yeah we were talking about earlier, the story of the flood being pervasive in Native American cultures all around the world. Everyone's got a flood story. It's like, yeah, places flood. People live by water, naturally. The ocean or rivers, that's what brings life and food and water. (laughs) You need to drink. So, and occasionally floods, there's heavy rain. So, we can all envision that and it's terrible, especially what was going on this last week here in Southern California. So, To imagine, though, that the whole Earth floods, it's like, that's pretty wild, but it's just, to me, very interesting and unusual that we all have an origin story, a reset story, where the entire Earth floods wipes everything out and we start all over again. Yeah. We have big people. There are medical conditions and genetic predispositions that can make somebody grow to a very large size. That's probably been going on since there's been people. I mean, it takes a lot of food to grow somebody that big. And generally, as we've seen throughout history, people usually are not that tall. Yeah, generally in the Middle Ages, if you look at the, the average height of a suit of armor, it's between five feet and five foot five inches. People weren't usually giants, so when you have somebody who's Say now, even not that big, six five. You're six
1: two, right? I was last time I checked. <laughs> yeah. I feel like in my old age I might be shrinking a little. but right. Yes, I'm six two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm it, generally a taller guy. I you're think generally for America, not, on average, yeah. yeah.
0: You're, um, uh, I believe, for a, an American man at the bottom of the normal bracket would be five seven five eight and six feet or six one at the very top, and it depends on the country. In Denmark, they're a lot taller they're on average. Yeah.
1: Well, I've been looking uh, in the research for this show. I was looking at averages across the world. Right. The, the tallest country yeah. with the average height is uh, Montenegro. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and then you said Denmark, uh, the Norwegians as well. Very yeah. tall.
0: Well, that's what happens. And so back in the middle ages, when you have uh, a king like Edward Longshanks and he's over six feet tall, he towers over everybody else. He seems kingly. Yeah. That's another thing that we'll talk about, the appearance of somebody who is a normal person, but seems so much larger than life and what their role will play in their own society and their own tribe and why that might figure into these encounter stories of Europeans coming to a Native America. Yeah. Getting back to that and Robin Hood and the stories of uh, coming out of Europe, anytime there's somebody huge, it makes the news. Yeah. <laughs> but it could be totally natural. They don't have to be supernaturally huge.
1: Dispatcher, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. Before we go too much further, I feel like we should talk about some of the more famous hoaxes. So these hoaxes come from a book that we are referencing for this series, one of several, called Giants on Record, America's Hidden History, Secrets in the Mounds, and the Smithsonian Files. This is written by Jim Vieira and Hugh Newman. This book is a bit controversial, as is the topic of giants in general. It's a polarizing topic. There's a lot of people that equate it with the whole ancient aliens thing, and then immediately we're going to Giorgio Suclos and aliens. And (laughs) we're not coming at it from that angle, from the ancient aliens angle. And even though there's a lot of people that equate the presence of ancient giants or these long ago larger people... Being somehow ancient aliens, I'm not going there necessarily. For me, it's more an yeah. idea of possible lost civilizations, uh, pocket civilizations, as I termed that I learned from uh, Professor Taylor. Yeah. Totally earthbound. Yeah. What we have found- If, if it we... exists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry.
0: Yeah. What we have found, just kind of skimming the cursory research angle here, is that these are incredibly impressive works, these mounds. And the
1: artifacts found within them as, well, whatever's left. Maybe we should talk a little bit about the kinds of things that are found in the mounds and, and where they are and what they represent. Because I think a lot of people don't really understand how much pre-Columbian history there is in North America. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's no. Everyone that, thinks, yeah. you know, oh, it started <laughs> with Columbus. And well, it's that's like, what I
0: said in the uh, in our
1: Great Courses Plus
0: ad yeah. a, a couple of shows back. But it starts with the arrival of columbus but as we'll hear in today's episode in this ad you know both worlds were ancient this world had people in it for tens of thousands of years and they immediately bring culture with them and some kind of identity so as this land like every land is populated is the very first humans move into it whatever they got going with them their stories their legends If it's pre-written, their oral traditions, whatever they communicate to each other about where they're from and what lies in the heavens, they bring with them. So it's a very ancient culture. But what we've seen here is that there is a civilization that predates the 1492 Columbian Exchange, Columbus uh, with a navigational error ending up in North America rather than India, and the world changes both worlds, as they call it, the new world. It's not really the new world. It's its own world. It's just a, it's a world they'd never seen before, these Europeans. And likewise, Europeans bring so many things over that the Native Americans had never seen before. But prior to this contact, there were civilizations that built great structures out of uh, wood and earth and a lot of these- and stone. And a few of the more famous ones can be found in Southern Ohio. So there we have the Serpent Mound historical site in Peebles, Ohio. We have the Hopewell Culture National Historic Park in Chillicothe, Ohio, as well as the Adena Mound in Chillicothe. And those are just referred to as cultures because a lot of that is gone. There are records of sorts with them in the forms of artifacts, ceremonial pipes, different pieces of pottery and art, and of course, people buried there, bones. What was happening in the 1850s is that sometimes farmers would own this land. From the ground, you can see that there is a, a hill there, but you're not really sure what it's all about. So farmers were starting to excavate and they'd come across graves with bones in them and some unusual artifacts. And, Funera- we have to, and uh, funerary objects. Yeah, and some of it, again, gets kind of edgy, and we have to be careful because when we mentioned this, I think with Kincaid's Cave, we had somebody on Twitter call us a nasty name because we even dared to bring up the story that some people had claimed to have found metal plates etched or decorated with biblical scenes. Yes. Look, we're not saying that that's... True, but that is a reported story, and that will tie into the giant's story as well, because it has a religious angle to it, of course, when you're seeing biblical stories on plates. Pre-Columbus, how do they get there? Well, there's some other crazy stories as well, as possibly Coptic Egyptian Christians fleeing persecution from Egypt and coming to America way before Columbus, and bringing their biblical stories and their artifacts here. So... The only thing I can tell you that I believe personally is that it's a lot more fascinating, mysterious, and complicated than we currently know now. The prehistory
1: of America. Yeah, that, absolutely. The pre European history. I of also America. personally believe that the Vikings were here long before Columbus. You know, I mean, yeah. that's something I've sort of picked up from Scott Walter, which he's a controversial figure, but the, the oh. whole Hooked X thing. Yeah, that's, a, because, good, that's a good book, though. I yeah, 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 exactly. And a lot of the stuff that we've read and a lot of the signs that you see pertaining to. Oak Island and other carvings that have been found in the Northeast of the United States indicate Viking symbology and their structures that seem like they may have been actually built by the Vikings.
0: Oh, yeah, and far into the um, region yeah. of the United States, yeah. the heartland, Minnesota even. Yeah. And, well, not just the football team. But the idea though is that there are discoveries being made by archaeologists currently. I just saw one like six months ago that was a great interesting coverage of a discovery of a campsite, probably a Norse site at Lance Amado. I think, in Nova Scotia. And we talked about that before, but now they're really finding settlements yes, that are much earlier than previously thought. So I actually found some notes here that I made for this series, Native Peoples of North America from the Great Courses Plus. Oh, and yeah. So, but it's exactly what you're talking about. And so one of the notes here was that the Dorset and ancient Arctic people encountered the Norse or Vikings in what is today Northwestern Greenland. And later, direct encounters dating from the year 1200 took place with the Thule in Greenland, Newfoundland, and Labrador. Okay. And the way that they know that there was some intermingling is that they would find, you know, Dorset being indigenous Eskimo culture. Yes,
1: they appreciated the Inuit. Yeah. uh, But there's no reason to believe, apparently, that they overlapped. They're believed to have gone extinct before the Inuit came along. See, that's what I'm
0: saying. That's what happens with the mound builders, that people came along, they built these amazing structures, and... For whatever reason, they move, they die out, they kind of fade away, and a new culture arises. Yes. And they don't have any connection with the previous one. No, Uh, but they
1: still use their burial mounds. Well, exactly. That's a
0: natural human inclination to want to put your dead somewhere sacred and away and out of the place, maybe closer to the sky. Someplace revered. So that's an idea, though, that just makes sense to peoples no matter who you are. Brad Lockwood says his own European relatives are buried in these old burial mounds because his family's generations old, from Western New York State. And they Yes, had right been up buried. against the uh, Lake Erie, actually. Yeah, this, yeah, the Seneca area. Yeah. So in any case, though, what you see the intermingling is that they'll find a Dorset piece of jewelry, like a Dorset-made gorget, which is like a necklace plate, but with Viking brass. And, you know, how do they get that? So we can see evidence of items being used by these native peoples of European origin either being traded later on as more contact is made and the spread of these items as they make their way into the interior of the country. So we know now
1: that it's not just 1492 with Columbus being the first to step foot here. And what's interesting about that, and we need to keep in mind when we're looking at these giant stories, is that that's revisionist history. Columbus, the way that that's presented is technically, it's revisionist history. It it glosses over all the things to happen before he got here accidentally oh, in the wrong place. So, right? And so that's something to remember too, because Forrest, this is something that you had said, which maybe you took, I'm sure you took from Winston Churchill or somebody, but that <laughs> history is written by the victors or something oh, to that effect. Oh, geez.
0: You wanna, I got to look that yeah, up. Yeah. Well, the gist no. of it
1: is that that is who tells you what happened. And when the things that preceded your cultural hero conflicts with what happened after that person did something, like Columbus discovered America, then it gets buried. The stories get buried.
0: Yeah, and here's the thing, though. You have some forms of contact that aren't that cemented. Let me tell you about another note here. In the 1480s, Native peoples in the Northeast encountered Basque mariners who had ventured into the area to take advantage of the vast supply of cod. That's also from that lecture series. Right. So they had come all this way, and that's not like making a settlement. That's not meeting the chief and coming in and exchanging uh, gifts and announcing yourself. It's citing them, and like there's land and there's people we've never seen before, and vice versa. So, what form of contact is that? It's not totally official. And again, there's no settlements or colonization happening. But it's Western Europeans making contact with North Americans before Columbus. It's just not in the same way and not as, uh, ugh, let's say, uh, with such a result. Yes. Yeah. But it has happened. So when you hear things about like the hooked X and some of the runes being found in uh, these tablets with some Viking markings on it, which I had heard were kind of like boundary markers, property markers that have been unearthed in farmers' fields. We just know that there's a lot of other uh, history out there that's not official, I guess. And also, I don't know if you saw that. That was on the show that you like, What on Earth? Yes. The satellite show? Yes. There's evidence for possibly a Chinese-style wall on the west coast of the United States. Right. Which greatly predates Columbus. And we mentioned this before. In the Veracruz area, there may have been some contact with people not of North America, with outsiders making contact with
1: early North Americans. But here's the other thing, though, to be completely clear, and I want to make sure we don't gloss over this, is that there is a collection of scholars who believe that, for example, the Kensington runestone is is a hoax. But it's not the only right. example. It's not proven to be a hoax. They right. believe that the man that discovered it might have created it, which actually brings us to some giant hoaxes that I think we should share before Absolutely. we go too much further. Sure. Probably the most famous giant hoax, is the one called the Cardiff Giant. Oh, I've of course heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually want to read about this from the book that we were referring to, Giants on Record, America's Hidden History, Secrets in the Mounds and the Smithsonian Files. This is by Jim Vieira and Hugh Newman. By the way, I wanted to also point out that those guys, both the authors, are not without their controversies. Hugh Newman famously has a banned TED speech. Which, <laughs> Ted
0: X exp- yeah. Yeah, he made a speech
1: that got banned. That in itself is a fascinating story. It does involve giants. We're going to talk about that more in the next part of the series. Well, to be clear, it was removed.
0: Yeah. Because a lot of the things in it could not be verified or were deemed not factual.
1: But still, they invited him there and he spoke yeah, in sure. the first place. So yeah. there's a lot to digest with that. I'm going to read this uh, from their book, which I have uh, the PDF version of it. So I can't tell you the page because... It just says location 284 of Uh, 7,513. So if anybody wants to look there, it's a spot. Okay. The Cardiff giant was one of the most famous hoaxes in United States history. Purportedly, it was a 10 foot long petrified man uncovered on October 16th, 1869 by workers digging a well behind the barn of William C. Stubb Newell in Cardiff, New York. Both it and an unauthorized copy made by P.T. Barnum are still on display. The giant was the creation of a New York tobacconist, atheist, George Hull, who decided to create the giant after an argument at a Methodist revival meeting about Genesis 6-4, which we talked about a little bit ago. That is the biblical verse that makes reference to the Nephilim. Right. So he got mad about that at a revival meeting, apparently. (laughs) He hired men to carve out a 10-foot, 4.5-inch long block of gypsum in Fort Dodge, Iowa, telling them that it was intended for a monument... To Abraham Lincoln in New York. He shipped the block to Chicago. This could not have been cheap, by the way. (laughs) Where he hired Edward Burgart, a German stonecutter, to carve it into the likeness of a man. And he swore him to secrecy. So what happened was they made this giant statue. It looks like a giant laying down. And yeah. they even took, I think, boards with nails on them or something to make I'd it heard look of like, like, yeah. yeah like well, was...
0: they, they beat it with chains
1: and these paddles that had nails pounded through them to pit it right. and age it. Fascinating. And then uh, P.T. Barnum wanted it, but he couldn't get his hands on it. So then he had another one made and was charging people <laughs> to look at that one. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is it was a journalist that was reporting on this. The journalist is the person who coined the phrase, there's a sucker born every minute. Uh-huh. Not P.T. Barnum. That's been misattributed. That was something I So There's learned. another
0: uh, misappropriation, a misattribution. Though. Yes, yeah. misattribution. <laughs> right. Right? It uh, takes off.
1: Yes. Blake, I hope you like that one if you're listening. But anyway, that's pretty fascinating. So this thing was really just a statue. It was rock. Yeah. He was claiming, I guess, that it was a petrified person. And
0: yeah, but I mean, if, I guess out of all durable materials, he didn't really have any latex or, yeah, you know, it, it's not a Bigfoot faking where you've got a, a furry suit with a bunch of uh, cow guts in it.
1: But, th- you know, there were other things along these lines. There were mummies. There were all kinds of things. And it, inv- invariably, as the technology became available, these things wound up getting x-rayed or ct scans and it was clear that they were fakes right there's a story uh the martindale mummies are a story of that there was another mummy that a man named judge Orr had also proven to be a hoax and then one of the most egregious things that's happened in the internet age and this is a classic creepy pasta copy paste kind of problem was a photoshop contest held at a website called worth a thousand dot com as in a picture's worth a thousand words This was in 2002, and they do a different contest every year, and the contest they did in 2002 was for giant skeletons in old photos. So Ah. these people submitted numerous, you know, I don't know, I didn't look to see how many entries, but theoretically probably hundreds, if not more, of photos of what looked like archaeologists uncovering giant skeletons. And all of those are still circulating like crazy on the internet. (laughs) Uh, It's clickbait. It's everywhere. Right. But what happens is it contributes to people. Talk about fake news. This contributes to people thinking, oh, my God, what is that? And it's not that there's not evidence like that out there in the world. We're going to talk about some evidence like that that is real. But the photos are never as good. Like, I saw one of those pictures, and it's like three people dusting off an eye socket on uh-huh. a skull. Yeah. Like it's so big, right. it looks like a Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, yeah. So that is, uh, for those of you that don't remember, that's a car they don't Well, you,
0: you, uh, you have to be, when you're going to fake something, don't fall into hyperbole because, well, there's some body parts, photos that obviously been faked yeah. to get you to click on them. But obviously it's like, that's way too huge to be real. However, sometimes there are medical anomalies. That happened and it is unbelievable looking, but true. So it was Stubb Newell, right, who was the atheist farmer that got into the Methodist argument. Yes. And wanted at the to, revival. At the and revival.
1: It, he was mad about Genesis 6, 4, I guess. And, yeah. Which said that giants walked the earth. So then he faked digging up a giant on his own farm. Okay. So here's
0: an interesting angle that I wanted to present because it's the opposite of the other reason to fake and hoax a giant sighting or producing a giant from the earth. Stubb here wanted to do it to make fools out of the people that would say, look, see, giants have walked the earth. It is true in the Bible. Right. And then they would parade that around and claim, look, see, all that is true. Genesis is true. We're literalists. And here's our proof. And then he would come out and say, like, no, you idiots. It's a big stone. And uh, I fooled you all. And you're full of malarkey. So that's one angle. But as we'll see later, some of these have been faked because the people wanted other people to believe that giants had roamed the earth, and especially North America. Yes. Because the religious angle there is that America is... The new Eden or the existing Eden. It's the new promised land, as we had mentioned earlier, the land of milk and honey. As giants were found there, giants were found here in North America. So that's the opposite reason of faking that, not to expose it as Stubb would want to do, but to keep people believing that stuff from the Old Testament could be true. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Jeff Goff. Now back to the show.
1: So now I want to talk about a place called Glastonbury Abbey. And this is a really fascinating story, especially as it relates to giants. This abbey was, for hundreds of years, the wealthiest abbey in all of Europe. Yeah. And certainly in England. However, it burnt to the ground in 1184 A.D., In the time between it burning to the ground and them trying to decide if they want to build something else there over four or five or six years, Westminster Abbey came into prominence. So there was no longer really room for Glastonbury Abbey to get rebuilt. Apparently, the monks who were at the monastery there who wanted to get the abbey rebuilt, because there were a couple of buildings that did survive the fire, not many, As these monks were excavating, presumably to begin rebuilding, they discovered something very unusual when they began excavating the site where Glastonbury Abbey used to stand. About eight feet underground, they discovered a leaden cross that had a message on it. It said, Here lies interred the famous King Arthur on the Isle of Avalon. So they pull the cross up, and they they can't believe it. It seems that they may have found King Arthur's grave. They dig and dig and dig eight more feet to a full depth of 16 feet, and they come across a huge wooden coffin. Inside this coffin, they find the skeletal remains of what they believe to be King Arthur. What's interesting about this and why it's part of this particular episode of Astonishing Legends is that this skeleton was purportedly nine feet tall. Although the first story that I read about this, which I read in the book, Giants on Record, Vieira and Newman's book that we've been referencing tonight, indicated that it was just King Arthur, other stories that we found through additional research indicated that Guinevere's remains were in the coffin as well, and that she, too, was incredibly tall at seven feet. So now we've got a nine-foot King Arthur and a seven-foot Guinevere found in this wooden coffin 16 feet down. Eight feet below a lead cross that clearly said it was King Arthur, on the site of Glastonbury Abbey, which had burnt to the ground just a few years prior. Wait, she's seven feet tall. She's seven feet tall. So she's a tall drink of water.
0: Yeah. Well, that's interesting because they makes them into a legendary couple at this point. Right. That's also an interesting angle because usually it's a singular giant. Yes of unknown origin. And here we are being
1: told we know exactly where the origin is. It's a pair of giants, and they've been properly labeled by this cross. Here's the thing about this, though, and this is something, it would have been the first thing that I thought, actually, but it also is backed up by research that archaeologists have recently done looking into this story. And by the way, this place is still visited today as the burial site of King Arthur, and I suppose Guinevere. Like I said, I've seen the story written both ways, whether or not she was there. This apparently was an example, according to archaeologist Roberta Gilcrest, of what is known as pious fraud. And a pious fraud is when you, in this case, would maybe come up with some fake relics in order to generate interest in maybe rebuilding your abbey that burnt to the ground and used to be the wealthiest abbey in Europe.
0: Right. Well, I would say they are smartly marketing this thing as going right to local pride of the peoples there, because at that time, not much was known about King Arthur. And to this day, we don't know much of anything. He may not have existed. All they know is that there was a hero that was a Celtic Briton, more of an indigenous Briton, who fought some battles against the invading Anglo-Saxon invaders, the Angles and the Saxons, from Saxony, and was able to repel them. And they're an overwhelming force. So he scored some great battles that fired people up and it delayed a massive invasion for a little while anyway. But no one's exactly sure of his name. So all these things that you hear in modern popular culture that are so popular today, and actually, just <laughs> I think over the break, I rented the Guy Ritchie film, finally. Oh. <laughs> it's very fantastical. A lot of flash and, and giant snakes and things like that. And that's all good fun. But the things like Excalibur and Avalon and Guinevere and Merlin and all these things, you know, pulling the sword from the stone... It's all been layered on over the years, and all they really know is around, I guess this would be the mid-5th century to the mid-6th century. Mm -hmm. He may have existed, but there's no clear evidence or record of his name only until, I think, Gildas maybe, maybe a hundred years later or a long time later, as it often happens with history. So here we're talking 1184 several hundred years after this dude may or may not have existed. So they're playing kind of fast and loose on it. But obviously what this tells me at this time is that now he's firmly cemented King Arthur as a legendary hero of the Britons.
1: And he's being used to drum up some support. And it seems to be working, right? Yeah. And by the way, we have to point out that it has been difficult to find any real corroboration of this find. Yeah. The only thing that they were able to prove was that there was an excavation there. There was a gentleman in the 50s named Raleigh Radford who excavated there. But Gilcrest, who is from current times, had indicated that he maybe took some liberties himself in indicating that there was a coffin recovered at that site. All he was able to prove was that there was digging that had been done there in roughly that time period, but he couldn't say what was in it. And this was a cemetery, which probably you would come across that sort of thing. Yeah. No matter where you dug What's fascinating about this is that in 1539, this thing took place called the dissolution of the monasteries, which is sometimes referred to as the suppression of the monasteries. This is from Wikipedia. This was the administrative and legal processes between 1536 and 1541 by which Henry VIII disbanded monasteries, priories, convents, and friaries in England and Wales and Ireland. He appropriated their income, disposed of their assets, and provided for their former personnel and functions. Although the policy was originally envisaged as increasing the regular income of the crown, much former monastic property was sold off to fund Henry's military campaigns in the 1540s. He was given the authority to do this in England and Wales by the Act of Supremacy, passed by Parliament in 1534, which made him supreme head of the Church of England, thus separating England from papal authority. Now, here's the thing about the last abbot of Glastonbury. This is after the fire and after the rebuild, which presumably part of what helped them rebuild was the discovery of King Arthur's remains, giant remains. The abbey itself was in possession of a lot of silver, gold, and real estate. Acting on orders of Henry VIII, three men arrived at Glastonbury in September of 1539, and they took everything the abbey had. And then when the abbot, Richard Whiting, resisted, they hanged him. Hmm. P.S., by the way, Whiting had voted in favor of Henry VIII becoming the supreme head of the church in England. He chose poorly. <laughs> well, he yeah, had no choice then either. So, yeah, yeah. After being hanged, Whiting was drawn and quartered as a traitor for his loyalty to the Roman Catholic Church over the King of England. So that was an untimely end for the last abbot of Glastonbury. Uh, ouch. Yeah, um, thank goodness he was hanged first. He was eventually beatified by Pope Leo XIII on May thirteenth, 1895, which I'm sure he was thrilled to find out about 478 years after being hanged, drawn, and quartered. Mm. One of the articles I was drawing some of this information from was at archaeology.org, where archaeologist Gilcrest points out that prior researcher and archaeologist Raleigh Radford may have exaggerated his claims of evidence regarding the discovery of Arthur's tomb, stating that all he really found was a pit in a cemetery that dates to sometime between the 11th and 15th centuries. Additionally, quoting that article, Analysis of the 12th century Abbey Church indicates that the monks themselves purposefully promoted the site's historical reputation. As they rebuilt the church after the Great Fire in 1184, instead of using contemporary architectural styles, they inserted antiquated and retrospective elements, apparently to deliberately feign antiquity. Mm. So I thought this was really fascinating. To me, you look at this one purported instance of a giant King Arthur being unearthed at Glastonbury Abbey Well, there's a lot of wiggle room with regard to the reality of it. Sure. Because these guys were just, it was all about, (laughs) we're going to (laughs) get this thing rebuilt. We got to get this thing up and running again. And you know what we need? We need a relic. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to say that King Arthur was buried here. And here's the thing about remains. Nobody's really around when you dig them up. And if you rebury them, no one's around for that either.
0: Right. You're just
1: pointing at the dirt you know, yeah. and you, you come up with the cross. But after the dissolution, when Henry VIII came and dissolved the monastery, the cross and the bones and all of that was lost. Yeah, a- and, and in the- theory, that, was, that would have become the property of Henry VIII at that point, if it existed. So let's say it did exist. There's a nine-foot skeleton, and there's this cross that says it's King Arthur. Henry VIII it could have gone into his private collection or what have you, and who knows where it went from there.
0: Yeah, it could have been reburied. Here's the thing. it's If it as, existed. Right. As we've seen a lot, sometimes there are real pieces to things. It may have been some real bones that were unusual. And maybe, let's say, for the time, unusual would be Six foot five. Yes. Seven feet. That would be very
1: unusual at the time, but not totally impossible. No, and one of the other things that's really interesting is something that I came across during this research, which I had not been aware of or even thought of because I've never dug anybody up. But (laughs) uh, That we know. Yeah, back at that time when it came to archaeology, archaeology really didn't exist. Yeah. And when you uncovered somebody who had been decomposing for however many hundreds of years in this case, if you believe any of this at all with regard to King Arthur, the skeleton spreads out and it can give you a false sense of the vertical height. And if you're not knowledgeable about the human body and how decomposition works and all that kind of thing, you might think that the changes it's undergone are indicative of a height that it just wasn't when it was all being held together by muscle and tissue. Exactly. Strange things
0: happen to the body. It's not a usual thing that most people see if you're not into forensics, but people often think that fingernails still keep growing and the body dies. Yeah. And what's happening, though, is that fingernails.
1: We learned about this with Summerton Man a little bit.
0: Yeah, you do. Right. Is that the tissue around the finger bone shrinks. So, and of course, the nails aren't growing. It's just that they they appear to grow, so they if, look
1: longer because the tissue is retreating. Exactly. The same thing with the hair on the head.
0: Right. Exactly. So what happens is that early people who found a skeleton, I was early, you know, pre turn of the century, all of the ligaments and sinew and tissue have dissolved away, have rotted away. So now you have loose bone, and what Scott's saying is that the bones. They're sitting a little further than they were
1: when the person plopped down. Right. And you can only imagine, too, by the way, with regard to this excavation and the relics and the pious fraud, it may have been rooted in the discovery of a real body. Well, that's what I'm saying. You can just see how this is playing out. Exactly. They're digging. We're going to rebuild the abbey or whatever. They come across a body. Maybe there's something unusual about it. Maybe there's not. And then they start contriving, you know, what if this was uh, really important? You know, what if we just twist this story a little bit? to generate interest in rebuilding the Abbey. And that is what it seems like happened there. At least that's what current experts believe. That's another case of it, albeit not that famous, but I thought it was very interesting, of a story being exaggerated about a giant. We're not really sure if the bones exist. And even if they do, we're not sure the person was real (laughs) in general. So there's a lot to consider there in terms of how a story can get blown out of proportion and and possibly even entirely fabricated.
0: Well, things are exaggerated. That's what we're saying is that it's so long ago, it's hard to get a handle on it, even if at the time it's been documented. Yeah. Because you can't go back and see what they found. Now, what we can do now with modern forensics is find Richard the Third in a parking lot in, in, a, a, parking in, a, par- lot. in a car That's park? Amazing, yes. yeah, in a park car park because based on his description and, and I believe uh, some descendants of his, you can kind of trace that and his um, scoliosis, I believe, a curvature of the spine. I believe there was a head injury. Yes, they put it all together. They
1: just declared that car park a historical site.
0: Well, there you go. He's been, <laughs> just, he's been resting peacefully with uh, cars, box halls, you know, rolling over him. But that kind of stuff happens, and, and we can have those kind of answers nowadays because of technology. And back then, who knows? And so when we have this idea of pious fraud, we can see a purpose for wanting to hoax something which maybe their heart is in the right place, They're trying to get some religiosity going here and have something for people to get excited about and believe in with religion. Same thing with the Pangboche hand.
1: The ends justifies
0: the means. Right. There's yeah. some mysticism going on here. And, yeah. and the idea was that, well, you know, look, a little fakery is going to help people get excited and strengthen their faith and get them something to look up to and a little bit of... And draw uh, visitors to the area. Some Britain pride. Sure. Why not? And as we said earlier on the flip side, with Cardiff, man, it was hoaxed so that these people would look foolish. Yes, for religious purposes. So there's definitely a
1: religious angle here, as we pointed out early on. On July 14th, 1916, the New York Times published an article under the headline, Find Horned Men's Skulls, Remarkable Discovery by Archaeologists in Susquehanna Valley. The article is as follows. Professor A.B. Skinner of the American Indian Museum, Professor W.K. Moorhead of the Phillips Andover Academy, and Dr. George Donahue, Pennsylvania State Historian, who have been conducting research along the Susquehanna, have uncovered an Indian mound at Tioga Point on the upper portion of Queen Ether's Flats on what is known as the Murray Farm, a short distance from Sayre, Pennsylvania, which promises rich additions to Indian lore. In the mound uncovered were found the bones of 68 men, which are believed to have been buried 700 years ago. The average height of these men was seven feet, while many were much taller. Further evidence of their gigantic size was found in large Celts or axes hewed from stone and buried in the grave. On some of the skulls two inches above the perfectly formed forehead, were protuberances of bone. Members of the expedition say that it is the first discovery of its kind on record and a valuable contribution to the history of early races. The skull and a few of the bones found in one grave were sent to the American Indian Museum. All right, so that's the end of the article. What they're saying here is that in this mound, and first of all, this is the kind of thing that would not happen now with the NAGPRA Act that we mentioned earlier, you can't just dig up sacred ground and remove 68 people. However, what's fascinating about this is this skull they're talking about with the protuberances, which are the horns. They're saying that these skulls had horns on them.
0: Well, yeah. And the inference here is that they're Nephilim skeletons. Right. They're giant. They're giants. Did the nephilim have horns? I'm sure they did at some point. (laughs) It's the the idea of horns, though, and we might uh, flesh this out a little bit, as it were. But the idea of horns represents power and kingly rule a lot of the times. So, as we'll see in antiquity, I think there's a an image of Alexander the Great on a coin, and he's got ram's horns. So it's often symbolic, but sometimes people do have bony protuberances naturally growing out of their scalps. Uh, It's a little bit, I think there was a case of a woman who had a very long one coming out of the top of her forehead. And from what I remember, it's like keratin. It's kind of the same hard bony material that your fingernails are made out of, Mm -hmm. except the body sometimes does strange things and grows things (laughs) in strange places. And so, Tell you, me about you, it. yeah, well, there you go. As you get older, there's hairs, <laughs> hairs in places you, you didn't expect. So in this case, weird things have happened, but symmetrical, like horns coming out, not a usual thing. <laughs> and, no, been, and, the- and I don't believe there's been any skulls that have been found that have had more than one. And I guess, like I said, there's been bumps and weird protrusions and certainly a uh, bone can grow in strange ways. I wanted to mention something though, which I've always thought, was fascinating on the woo woo spiritual side and that is people seeing weird color people shadow people and when i mean color people like an all red person or being show up in their rooms people have described all yellow i had friends of mine their children saw a purple man yes in the bedroom yes both children at years apart describing it differently never talked to each other at a very young age. So there's something with these colors, but often they're described having horns. And again, animals have horns for defense, generally, and fighting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Why do deer have horns? It's, that's how they battle. And so there's a purpose for that. Obviously, humans aren't going to fight that way. You're going to use your fists or a weapon, or you're beyond the veil psychic abilities. Whatever that is, it doesn't make any sense, but it's symbolic in a weird way. So anyway, I just want to mention that I, I made that connection. It's like horns. Why? Yeah. And That's it, so strange. And especially, you know, again, if you do go believing the weird entities from beyond the veil and the descriptions of some of them having horns, why? <laughs> What's the point? Literally. What we have here
1: is that it adds a little color to the discovery. And you know what else adds color to the discovery? Yeah. And although it didn't happen in the, obviously in that original publication of the paper. Yeah. There's a photo associated with this story that you see every time you read this story online. There is an image of a skull that is horned. yeah, Yeah. And if you follow us on social media, you will have already seen it because I'm, even though I haven't done it yet as I record this, I will be tweeting it out when we post this episode. Right, right. And it's disconcerting to say the very least. So as these bones are being unearthed, there's bystanders.
0: It's kind of a big thing in the town there and... People are seeing some strange things, and you can see the story ball rolling here. Something that might be really fantastical as a discovery is gaining monumental proportion as the discovery of the century, and something that we will now all question our origin story and the the Old Testament. (laughs) It is the Bill Murray thing of Old Testament stuff, really fantastical, Fire and wrath and brimstone and giants and beasts and battling angels and all that kind of stuff. So now you're seeing the kind of fervor that goes along with this. Well, this also is the root of my mistake here in that this project got so kind of out of hand out of a simple idea of like, let's talk about giants in America and specifically The Sayer, Pennsylvania, Spanish Hill, Horned Seven Foot Giant incident, which now turned into all giants. So, (laughs) and where that happened, I was kind of joking with Scott and Tess in text here, because uh, a good friend of mine, she'd given me a a fact or crap calendar. (laughs) It's like usually she'll give me one of those peel away calendars, which I really enjoy, in some different themes, and this one was the fact or crap, and. On a certain day, the challenge is that you have to kind of guess if it's fact or crap. And since and this page-a-day type calendar has had several interesting ideas for the show. Yes, it has. So,
1: <laughs> it comes up a lot. It, it, well,
0: you know, because you peel it away. And what we've learned here on the show is like, again, we're not trusting of anything. I, it's like, I'll read something. It's like, wait, is that true? Because things are cut and pasted. And who knows who's writing these things? It's certainly titillating. But here is the text or the copy from that particular day on the fact or crap. And again, you have to, you read the statement and you have to guess whether it's fact or crap, and then you add up your points at the end of the week. Right. So it's a game everybody can play. So the statement is, several giant human skeletons with horned skulls were unearthed in a burial mound in Pennsylvania in the 1800s. And you flip over the page at the backside, it's Fact. Shortly after their discovery, the giant AD 1200 skeletons mysteriously disappeared from the Museum of Philadelphia. The Institute chosen to study the skeletons, and they always put a joke line here, boneheads. So <laughs> that is the, <laughs> your little joke for the day. I had that and it's like, wait, God, that sounds a little bit like the Sayer, Pennsylvania incident, Spanish Hill. Is that what they're talking about? I had to kind of put that together. And that is, it turns out what they're talking about here. If these horn skulls were real, then where are they now? And what do they say about us?
1: That's going to wrap up part one of our series on giants. A reminder to look for our commercial-free bonus show next week with Dr. Chris Cogswell, the new director of research at MUFON. The following week, part two of this series will run. In it, we'll talk about evidence pointing to what might have been a pocket civilization of giants in France whose skulls indicate they would have been 10 to 15 feet tall.
0: Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana.
1: Special thanks to John Bolin.
0: Hi, I'm R.A. Fadley. I'm Jeff Goff, and I promise to use my voice galaxy-wide in perpetuity. G-O-R-E-A-D-Y E-F-F
1: our show is edited by Sarah Wendell, and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The ARC and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel.
0: But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter,
1: and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.